This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about structured settlements from Ringler Associates, the first name in structured settlements, helping injured people and their families since 1975. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by Allstate, American General, John Hancock, Liberty Mutual, MetLife, Mutual of Omaha, New York Life, Pacific Life, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, hello and welcome to Ringler Radio, everyone. I'm Larry Cohen, the head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and we're certainly glad you could join us today. Well, thousands of people every year have an endoscopy, a non-surgical procedure to examine their digestive tract for potential issues. Unfortunately, the use of a contaminated scope manufactured by the Olympus Corp. of the Americas, the device used in the procedure, led to a superbug outbreak at Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center. Uh, Antonio Cerda, a mother of four, died after she contracted a superbug infection from two procedures with contaminated scopes. And at least seven other patients have been infected, including 18-year-old Aaron Young, who's also filed a lawsuit against the manufacturer, Olympus, alleging negligence and fraud. So today on Ringler Radio, we'll take a look at the impact that contaminated scopes have on patients, the FDA's role in all of that, and the litigation uh, that's transpired from that, and, of course, the future of endoscopies generally. And uh, to talk about all that, I'm uh, happy to be uh, joined today by my special guest, Pete Kaufman. Pete is an attorney with the Los Angeles firm Panis, Shea & Boyle, and for most of his career, the focus of his work has been medical device and pharmaceutical litigation. You can find out more about Pete and his firm at psblaw.com. So with that, Pete, welcome to the show. Welcome to Ringler Radio. Thanks very much, Larry. Great. Well, Pete, why don't you talk to us uh, a little bit about your work in the medical device and pharmaceutical litigation arena? Uh, sure. So for the past 12 years or so, most of my practice has involved suits against the manufacturers of drugs or the manufacturers of medical devices. Um, a decade ago, it was largely pharmaceutical litigation. So uh, we're talking about uh, prescription drugs that are approved by the FDA, uh, so-called brand name drugs as opposed to generic drugs. Uh, About five years ago, um, my involvement in medical device litigation took off with the recall of the DePue ASR hip. Um, I've also had cases involving defective mesh, um, a defective pain pump, and now the Olympus Q180V duodenoscope. And w- what a lot of people don't know, and I think the biggest difference between drug litigation and device litigation is uh, because of a Supreme Court ruling, you can only sue a manufacturer of a so-called brand name drug. These are drugs that are approved pursuant to a process called the new drug application. Uh, It's a a process that can take years and consumes many thousands of pages. Uh, 98% or so of medical devices are approved using a shortcut called a 510K. And largely because of this shortcut process, we've seen in the past couple of years, unfortunately, uh, a real explosion of uh, defective devices. And what you find out when you 
drill down is that most of the time, uh, these products start off as a good idea and are used in patients before anyone has proven that they're safe and effective, and that's certainly the case with the Q180V scope. Well, in fact, let's let's start the discussion about the scope because that's the essence of uh, what we're talking about here today. So why don't you inform our audience, how exactly is a, is a scope used during a, an, an endoscopy? How, how, does that, how does that work? Well, you, you have a larger uh, a sort of umbrella group of procedures that you could loosely term endoscopy. Mm-hmm. Um, the simplest version of that would be uh, a scope that's passed down the uh, esophagus that goes through the esophagus and into the stomach to look for something like a, a GI bleed. That scope is fairly simple. The scope that we're talking about today, the Q180V Duodna scope, is used in a procedure called ERCP, which stands for Endoscopic Retrograde Cholangiopancreatography. The Duodna scope is different from most endoscopes because it's far more complicated and the procedures are more complicated. So uh, patients who receive an ERCP commonly have a blockage in their common bile duct or they're receiving chemotherapy or they're transplant patients and they need sophisticated and complicated work performed uh, in the duodenum at the bile duct or pancreatic duct. Mm. Well, give us a little bit of a brief overview, if you could, of, of what happened when these contaminated scopes were used during these endoscopies or, or what, what you call uh, you know, looking at the duodenum area? Okay. Um, so about uh, seven or eight years ago, well, let me actually back up. I talked briefly about how the duodenoscope is more complicated than uh, the garden variety endoscope. And that's because um, there, are, uh, there are actually uh, surgical procedures that are being performed, such as the placement of stents or the removal of stents or uh, obtaining tissue for biopsy. And so these devices have a forceps elevator at the tip. Uh, And there's an awful lot of uh, software and hardware that uh, is necessary to perform these procedures that's housed within the scope. That makes the scopes difficult to clean. Years ago, and by that I mean about seven or eight years ago, every one of these scopes had a number of open channels. And after the scope was used, before it could be disinfected, those channels had to be cleaned manually, which required a technician to to use a syringe and to flush those multiple channels out. In order to make the device easier to clean, the manufacturers one by one began to seal those channels. Um, now that made it easier, but it 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 rendered the scopes almost impossible to claim. So in the middle part of 2010, Olympus, which has the largest market share of any of these device manufacturers, sealed the channel in their 160V scope and rebranded it the Q180V. In so doing, they promoted... Uh, the growth of bacteria, because that sealed channel permits fluid to go in, but because it's sealed, it can't effectively be cleaned. So when the scopes are reprocessed, and I, I should emphasize, the scopes are disinfected between um, between patient uses. They're not sterilized. So what what happened, and it happened first in 
uh, Holland, and then in Germany, and then in Pittsburgh, and then in Chicago, and then in Seattle, and finally in 2015 in Los Angeles, was the scopes are passed into the digestive tract, and they will pick up bacteria. Um, and some of these bacteria can be harmless, and some of these bacteria can be uh, can easily be eradicated with antibiotics. But unfortunately, um, occasionally they picked up what's known as a carbapenem-resistant bacteria, and that's a that's a family of bacteria that have actually developed a resistance to a family of antibiotics called carbapenems. Carbapenems are the last-line antibiotics, the most powerful drugs that we have, uh, the last choice in an infectious disease doctor's uh, armamentarium for trying to eradicate an infection. Uh, when, a, when a patient gets a carbapenem-resistant infection, um, it's, uh, it's like having the worst flu you ever had, but it's completely resistant to antibiotics. And would that be what we're calling today a superbug in, in this in this example. Uh, that's that's exactly right. That's Mike. right. So, tell us a little bit more. Obviously, Olympus uh, is saying they provided a protocol to to the UCLA Medical Center to clean these devices, but as you said, the the protocol didn't work because of the way it was designed. So, what's been the reaction of California and some of the other states uh, and the various hospitals? that are located in the venues where these events have taken place. What is going on? Are they being banned? Are they being, is protocols for cleaning changing? What's happening in that, in that regard? Well, um, what's remarkable is that you saw a number of these outbreaks all over the country before they happened in UCLA, and that they were dealt with quietly. Um, there's no indication, for example, that the physicians at UCLA, one of the biggest facilities on the West Coast, indeed one of the biggest facilities in the country, there's no indication that those physicians knew much about what had happened in Seattle a year earlier or what had happened at UPMC in Pittsburgh two years earlier or what had happened in Holland four years earlier. So uh, you ask what the reaction was. The reaction at, at UCLA was pretty dramatic. Uh, towards the end of 2014, there were a number of patients with the so-called superbug or carbapenem-resistant infections. Um, obviously, the first reaction is to try to treat those patients, which in and of itself is very difficult. The second step is to figure out why you have not one or two, but seven patients infected with these bugs. And UCLA painstakingly tracked the medical histories back um, and the, uh, the procedure all of these patients had in common was an ERCP, and the device they all had in common was one of two Q180V scopes. So the reaction at UCLA um, was to be forthcoming. So um, the epidemiology department and the gastroenterology department um, had a press conference in February of 2014, and they announced what happened. They uh, communicated what they knew to their patients. They told um, they, were, they were on the order of about 200 patients they thought possibly were infected. Uh, actually, these are the patients that they knew were exposed to the contaminated scopes. Uh, they undertook to have all of these patients tested. Um, they examined the protocol that uh, Olympus had provided 
determined that they had been following it to the letter and they had not had these issues with the Q180 or with the Q160 scope. And so uh, they took the extreme step of instead of disinfecting the scopes in-house, because it wasn't practical to discontinue um, ERCP uh, at UCLA because they have lots of chemotherapy patients and lots of organ transplant patients. So they took the rather extreme step of uh, not disinfecting the scopes but sterilizing them using gas. Uh, that requires that the scope be taken off campus, and the turnaround time goes from four hours to about 72 hours. But the physicians at UCLA determined that that was the the only way to ensure that these scopes were safe for uh, use in multiple patients. Um, it, with respect to the reaction, you know that's what UCLA did. Right. Uh, hard on the heels of that. Uh, of that press conference, Ted Lieu, the representative um, uh, for the west side of Los Angeles, got involved. Um, Senator Patty Murray from Washington State got involved, all asking the, the same sorts of simple questions, which is, how can you possibly sell a device like this when you know it's being used in multiple patients if you don't ensure that it can be claimed? And uh, it's not clear that Olympus has an answer to that question. Hmm, interesting. And uh, the FDA hasn't come down with any, any dramatic ruling on it yet. Well, the FDA had an advisory committee meeting in May. Um, at that time, they heard notably from physicians from Holland and Germany who had exactly the same problem who did exactly what the physicians at UCLA did, meaning they tracked back the infections to one common procedure and one or two or three common scopes. Uh, they described how with the help of Olympus personnel, they disassembled the scopes and determined that there was contamination in the sealed channel. So um, the FDA and this is interesting, the, the FDA can only do so much. This is a, an understaffed and underfunded federal agency. So the FDA looked to the manufacturers um, and reemphasized that they needed a validated cleaning protocol or, or uh, reprocessing protocol. Olympus made changes to the reprocessing protocol um, remarkably, they're the same exact changes they made in Holland in 2014, changes which were never disseminated in the United States before multiple patients died. Um, but they stopped short, and, and I mean the FDA, they stopped short of mandating a change from disinfection of the devices to sterilization. Uh, but that said, multiple facilities like Virginia Mason, like UCLA, like Cedar sinai here in L.A. have switched to sterilization because um, they want to take whatever steps yeah. are necessary to avoid another outbreak. That's the only thing that seems to work. Well, Pete, you're currently, you currently represent the family of uh, Antonia Cerda and Aaron Young and, and perhaps others. Uh, first of all, will you be consolidating these cases or are they going to go individually uh, in, into the courtroom? Well, they've been related in Los Angeles. So there are seven cases. We filed seven cases, one in federal court, six in state court. 
Um, one or two or three more cases have now been filed. The state court cases have been related. So they're assigned to a single judge in the Central Civil West uh, Division um, of the uh, L.A. Superior Court system. Um, they almost certainly will be consolidated, um, which means that for pretrial uh, uh matters and for discovery, um, the cases will proceed uh, sort of as one. Um, consolidation does not necessarily mandate that they would be tried together. In fact, uh, it would be close to unprecedented in medical device litigation for 10 cases to be tried at once. But you know, it remains to be seen what will happen as these cases get right? So, trial. so this, there's no there's no class designation here of any of these cases yet. There's not the kind of volume I, I would assume that that warrants something like that. Well, um, it certainly warrants consolidation with respect to a class. It's inappropriate to treat um, individual injury cases via the class action mechanism. Um, we petitioned for a what's known as a JCCP, so a Judicial Council Coordinated Proceeding, uh, that probably will not be granted because all of the cases filed so far were filed in L.A. County, and JCCPs are uh, appropriate only if there are cases in multiple counties. There may be cases in in, uh, other counties as we go forward, um, it, it's not entirely clear why we had outbreaks at UCLA, Cedar Sinai, and Huntington Memorial here in LA County, but we haven't seen them in Orange County or San Diego or San Francisco or anywhere else. Um, that may change. If it does, there will there will certainly be a JCCP. Um, and as more cases are filed in federal court, we may see a multi-district litigation, which is the appointment of a single federal district judge to uh, shepherd the cases through discovery and then assign them out for trial. Special master. Well, let, let me uh, let me make something clear to the audience. Uh, when you file suit, are you filing suit against the manufacturer and the hospital in, in this instance? The cases we have filed so far have been against three companies, Olympus Corporation of the Americas, which is the Olympus umbrella corporation in the U.S., uh, Olympus America Incorporated, which um, has some regulatory duties and markets the scope, and Olympus uh, uh, Medical and uh, Scientific Corporation, which is a Japanese company headquartered in Tokyo. We have not sued the hospitals. We may have to. Um, and we have not sued the manufacturers of the automated endoscopy reprocessing units, which are like dishwashers for scopes, um, but we certainly will in the not-so-distant future. So that's probably the biggest develop, or the biggest recent development in these cases. Two weeks ago, the FDA ordered the recall of uh, largely every... Um, automated endoscopy reprocessing machine made by a company called Custom Ultrasonics uh, because they didn't have FDA approval after eight or nine years on the market, which is incredible. Um, And that's the type of unit that was used at UCLA. Well, we're going to take a quick break right now and be back in a minute right here on Ringo Radio 
with my special guest, Pete Kaufman. We'll be right back. This is Ringler Radio from Ringler Associates, the leader in the structured settlements profession nationwide. Did you know that Ringler is involved in a third of all structured settlement cases in the country? Ringler Associates works with all the parties in a lawsuit settlement to find the best possible financial solution for the people involved. There's a Ringler Associate in all the major cities of the U.S. No one has more experience than a Ringler Associate. Check out our new website at www.ringlerassociates.com for the best information for claimants, legal professionals, and claims personnel, and to find the Ringler Associate nearest you. When it's your interest at stake in a lawsuit settlement, you want only the best financial plan. You can count on Ringler Associates to structure a customized plan that meets the needs of you and your family for the future. Visit ringlerassociates.com to learn more. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. Glad you could join us. I'm joined here today by my special guest, Attorney Pete Kaufman, from the Los Angeles firm of Panis, Shea & Boyle. And uh, Pete, we've talked a lot about the the two specific cases. Uh, We mentioned them at least, and uh, you talked about some others. What do you see in the f- in the future in terms of future litigation and other cases developing out of uh, out of what you've seen so far? You know, it's difficult to tell. So uh, when this problem surfaced at UCLA, when it when it surfaced at Cedar Sinai, uh, the reaction that the hospitals had was aggressive, and it appears to have been successful. So um, you, you certainly could speculate that. The uh, that that we will not see future outbreaks of CRE infections related to these scopes, and I hope that that's the case. What's unfortunate, though, is that because of the work that we've done and because of uh, information that we have on our website, we routinely get calls from around the country uh, from patients who have. Uh, circumstances that are very suspicious for a CRE infection after an ERCP. And so we've now seen them from Florida, from Illinois, from New York, and from North Carolina. And those cases have been confirmed. And what's remarkable is that the facilities where those patients were seen uh, don't appear to have come out like UCLA and like Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles um, being completely above board and being completely candid with patients about what happened. Um, in some of these hospitals, patients are simply told that they have sepsis, um, which is uh, not not completely inaccurate, but it's certainly it's certainly not completely forthcoming. I mean, it's one thing to tell a patient that they got an infection while they were in the hospital. It's another thing to tell the patient that they got an infection that they certainly shouldn't have gotten, and they got it because a medical device they were exposed to couldn't be cleaned. Um, I think hospitals have an obligation to provide that information to clients, one, so that they can make informed decisions about their care, um, and just as important so that they can make informed decisions about pursuing whatever rights they have against the manufacturer. Yeah, and speaking of the care of the patient, uh, our audience might be interested to know a little bit more about what this, what are, what are this, what's the symptomology of, 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 this, uh, of this 
you know, this super bug that they've, they've, uh, they've encountered. How does the patient, how have your clients, uh, reacted to it? What, 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 tell us something about their condition and what, what's happened with them. So very generally speaking, there are two types of patients that receive an ERCP. Um, terminally ill patients or, or patients whose immune com, uh, systems are compromised, uh, because they're gravely ill. So an example would be a patient who needs a liver transplant. Um, so a patient who, if they don't receive a liver transplant, almost certainly will not survive. Patients like that have have uh, highly compromised immune systems or patients with um, lethal cancers like... Um, Pancreatic cancers. Or even worse, cholangiocarcinoma, which is cancer of the bile duct. So a uniformly fatal... Uh, form of cancer, the median survival time is six months, and no patient has ever lived with it more than five years. So when you have a patient like that, when they're exposed to a superbug, they usually die. Um, so all of the patients that are, or all of the, all of the people that we represent who die, or the families of these patients, all of the ones that died were uh, either transplant patients or chemotherapy patients. So, unfortunately, that's the typical reaction for a patient like that. Uh, a patient that's acutely ill commonly, commonly would have a condition like pancreatitis or some sort of blockage in their bile duct. Uh, if they're acutely ill but their immune systems are not compromised, uh, the, the, a typical reaction is um, they become gravely ill. Um, we had a uh, one a client who had a, a temperature of 103 for 30 days, um, and it can't be controlled. There's nothing you can give the patient to bring that down or to moderate that reaction, and so um, you have to use mechanical means to bring the temperature down. So you spend 30 days wrapped in an ice blanket in the ICU, being fed through a tube and in a drug-induced coma. Um, we're talking about hospital stays of three, four, five, six months, most of that in ICU, um, uh, most of that in, in circumstances where your, your families have to be completely gowned and protected when they come to see you. Um, you know, the good news is uh, that more or less healthy patients, so patients whose uh, immune systems are not compromised, can survive a superbug infection, but um, not 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 uh, without months and months and months in the hospital. Well, you know, Pete. In addition to uh, working hard to try to uh, provide your 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 claimants, your your clients and their families with the uh, the appropriate damages that they're entitled to. Uh, I know in these kinds of cases, you're also looking for the manufacturers to change their, their process and their procedures. What, what should Olympus have done differently and what needs to be done uh, really around the manufacturing of the product and with scopes in general? What, what, do you, what do you think should come of this on that side of the house? Um, you know, I, I, I'm not so sure that we're – that the focus of any litigation – is change. And, and that sounds cynical, but I think it's based on years and years of doing this and seeing that, that change 
uh, is is incredibly slow. So there, look, there are a couple of there are a couple of ways to deal with this, or a couple of I, I won't even call them recommendations. But in a perfect world, what would happen? Well, um, in a perfect world, when Olympus first found out about the possibility of of uh, cross contamination between patients, and so this would have been at the end of 2011 in Rotterdam, in Holland. Um, they would have uh, thrown every resource possible at solving the problem of uh, of contaminated scopes. So, um, you know, it should have started when they tweaked the 160 scope to rebrand it as the 180 scope. They shouldn't have assumed that the existing reprocessing protocol would work when they had made a physical change to the scope. Um, they should have been more more forthcoming with uh, with hospitals. Um, what's funny, in a in a sort of uh, uh, ironic and almost disgusting way, is that when UCLA changed their reprocessing protocol and switched from disinfection on site to sterilization off site, they had to buy more scopes. So this is uh, this is a lot different uh, from a situation where a drug company might have a drug that looks defective, and if they take it off the market, obviously they'll they'll lose revenue. This was an opportunity for Olympus to increase revenue. Um, so for, from Olympus, they should have communicated more, and they should have been more proactive. Uh, in uh, in determining if they had a reprocessing protocol that worked, or in in developing a reprocessing protocol that worked, on the FDA side of the house, I, I don't know what else to say besides pay more attention. In 2015, the FDA finally realized that the Q180V scope didn't even have the shortcut clearance um, from the agency. Um, and you know, consumers and patients can hear that and be alarmed, but there's a, there's a reasonable explanation for that. When Olympus tweaked the scope, they decided internally that they didn't need a new clearance. They told the FDA that the FDA uh, didn't agree, but they didn't aggressively pursue the company. Um, they they maintain that they made it clear that the 180V needed a clearance, but they gave Olympus permission to sell the device without it, and then they never followed up with the company to ensure that the process was completed. And oh, by the way, completing the process wouldn't avoided the, have avoided this problem at all. Um, so, you know, the, the root cause certainly, I think, has an awful lot to do with. 510k shortcut clearance for medical devices, um, and it, it doesn't appear as if that's going to change anytime soon. Well, you know, we've heard this uh, these kinds of issues around the FDA in so many cases where uh, people shake their heads as to you mentioned it before the understaffing, the the underfunding, and and, and really the somewhat the mismanagement of the processes and, as you said, accelerating some and, and delaying others, uh, it, it's, quite a, it's quite a problem, uh, I think, for all of us out here to, to, to have to grapple with. And I guess a lot of us close our eyes and hope for the best. But, uh, you know, it's people like you and, and lawyers like you that, that help protect the rest of us by, uh, you know, taking action on a lot of the cases like, 
like the ones we're talking about here today. So with, with that as, uh, as, as backdrop, how do you think these contaminated scopes that, that Olympus has, has been involved with, and how do you think this whole arena is going to, you know, deal with the future of endoscopies generally and, and the ones that you mentioned about, you know, the duodenum and all that. How, how is that going to, fu- in the future, what's going to happen as a result of everything you're doing and, uh, and is being done by, let's say, the FDA? Where, where, where are we headed? Well, uh, now the FDA is focused on, uh, on these medical devices, and obviously I think that's going to improve compliance. Um, the reprocessing protocols have changed, and GI labs around the country are sensitized to the possibility of, of uh, patient cross-contamination, and so I think that will improve the situation. Um, moving from disinfection to sterilization, I think, can change that, and, and that's that's a step in the right direction, and that's a good development because these procedures aren't going anywhere. There were 500,000 ERCP procedures in 2014, um, and that's a specialized procedure. So obviously there are millions of endoscopies, and uh, the devices work, and they're important, and they improve patient outcomes, um, and so they're not going anywhere. Um, you know, the limited good news is that the, the focus of, uh, of these outbreaks um, has probably improved patient care and made things safer because because there's you know because uh, attention has yeah been paid. people are paying attention um, exactly exactly so Pete finally w- if someone's out there that that suspects that maybe a loved one or someone else has been uh, involved in in, in getting so- somewhat affected uh, negatively by uh, some kind of an endoscopy or a contaminated scope potentially what. What, what do you advise them to do? What should someone like that, that that suspects they've had a problem do? My first advice to anyone who's sick is to take care of the medical issues um, before you start thinking about calling a lawyer. So um, if you have a doctor that you trust, talk to that doctor. If you don't have a doctor that you trust or a doctor that you feel uh, comfortable speaking with, find another doctor. Um, these cases are tragic, but they are they are uh, pretty easy to screen. We're talking about a specific uh, a, a specific procedure, the ERCP, and we're talking about a reaction that, regrettably, you will not miss. Um, you, 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 if, if you're thinking long and hard about whether you had a CRE infection, the good news is you probably didn't have one. Um, but if you or a loved one had an ERCP procedure and got an infection that your doctor said was very difficult to treat or had your family doctor or infectious disease doctor scratching their head and telling you we're going to try antibiotic after antibiotic after antibiotic, certainly that's suspicious um, and you may have rights um, against the manufacturer, against the hospital, or against the manufacturer of the reprocessing units. And if that's the case, uh, certainly I encourage you to, uh, to contact an attorney. Um, and if you do so, you should contact an attorney who specializes in medical device litigation uh, because lawyers are a little like doctors. We, we, we tend to focus on, on one area as opposed to another. And these are complicated cases. And, and candidly, I think they should be handled by, uh, by people who specialize in this, 
in this sort of litigation. Well, no doubt about that. And, uh, you know, this has been a fascinating and, uh, and informative and educational uh, show for a lot of our listeners. And, and uh, I will say that there's also no doubt that uh, in terms of uh, the knowledge and expertise you've, you've certainly presented here to us today, Pete. So if someone wanted to get in touch with you, Pete, about any of this uh, or any other matter, how would they do that? Uh, the best way is to uh, send me an email at Kaufman, my last name, K-A-U-F-M-A-N, at PSBlaw.com, or go to my firm's website, www.PSBlaw.com. Uh, we've got an awful lot of information there, and I'm, I'm typically uh, pretty easy to reach by email or by giving us a call. Well, that's, that's terrific. And uh, I want to remind our audience that if you want to reach any Ringler associate to uh, get involved with any of our associates on structured settlement issues or others, other matters, you can do that by going to our website, ringlerassociates.com, where you can also find all the Ringler radio shows, the hundreds we've done over the years. Uh, you can also find Ringler radio shows at ringlerradio.com legaltalknetwork.com or on iTunes where you can uh, download uh, the show right to your device and uh, listen at your leisure uh, as you do other things. So with that, I want to thank my special guest, Pete Kaufman, for being such a great guest today on such an informative uh, and interesting topic. So thank you again, Pete. Thanks very much, Larry. And for the rest of you out there, go have a great day. Bye-bye. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. With over a million listeners, Ringler Associates, the first name in structured settlements. Visit ringlerassociates.com today. Today.